Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your premiere podcast, all about discussing the works of Rick Riordan. Right now, we're on Percy Jackson and the Olympians, book five, The Last Olympian. No Chapters. more Olympians. No more. No, fucking Wanda Maximoff, no more Olympians. Oh, I see. I see what you did there. Yeah, it's a funny little joke about comic books. It's about this this niche thing you might not have heard of. It's called Marvel Comics. Yeah, I don't know if any of you are into Marvel Comics these days. <laughs> I know people really like Superman. I know people really like uh, Batman. I, I don't know if people really like... I know they're kind of underground, sort of in the space right now. I prefer Bola, frankly. Uh, that's a terrible disease. Anyway, <laughs> let's uh get started. Today we're reading chapters, I believe, twelve through fourteen of the Last Olympian. E. Chapter twelve. Rachel makes a bad deal. Percy and son of Apollo Will Solace rush to the plaza in Central Park, where Annabeth is being kept, with only a quick interruption by an irate statue of Pompona. When they arrive. Will cleans and dresses Annabeth's poison knife wound, and the Stoll brothers lead some demigods through to a drugstore for supplies. Silena, blaming herself for not being a better fighter, convinces Percy to let her fly back to Camp Half-Blood and convince Clarice to join. When they're alone, Percy and Annabeth have an intimate moment in which he reveals to her his weak point, and she reveals to him that Hermes is angry with her because Luke tried to reach out to her last year, but she rebuked his offer for them to run away together. She's worried that she should have just killed him then. Back outside, Grover and Thalia give an update on the battle. It's going poorly, due in no small part to the spy leaking information. Percy takes a nap, and during it he dreams of Nico trying to summon his mother's ghost, and has a scene of Hades trying to convince her to come live in the Underworld, safe from Zeus, but to no avail. Zeus sends a lightning bolt down towards them, and Hades is only able to save the children. And that's when the young oracle of Delphi comes out of the shadows to say, I told you so. Hades curses that so long as his children remain outcast and the great prophecy is active, the oracle will never have another mortal host. The dream then shifts to Rachel, convincing her parents to take her back to New York so she can deliver an important message to Percy. In exchange, she promises to go to finishing school. He's then woken up by Thalia because a titan has come to talk. Chapter 13. A Titan Brings Me a Present Prometheus, the titan of fire, forethought, and crafty counsel, arrives under a banner of truce, surrounded by an entourage that includes Ethan Nakamura. He's here to talk Percy down, saying that if he surrenders, New York will be spared, and his forces will be granted amnesty. Otherwise, devastation is almost guaranteed. Percy takes a jab at Ethan, saying that not being able to kill them would surely put a dent in his revenge plan. But Prometheus stops things before they blow up by showing Percy the rest of Luke's story. The night Luke, Annabeth, and Thalia visited Luke's mom, his dad showed up and they got in a huge argument where Hermes refused to tell Luke about his mother's condition, what could happen to Luke in his future, and made it clear that he wouldn't be any more of a presence in Luke's life than he already had been, which was essentially none. When Percy comes to, he's pissed at the gods but still angry with Kronos, and he makes that clear. As a last resort, Prometheus gives Percy the Jar of Pandora and tells him that when he wants to surrender, he can simply open it and let go of Elpis, spirit of hope. The truce party then departs, leaving Percy with his decisions to be made. Chapter 14, Pigs Fly. After the meeting, Thalia and Percy convene so Thalia can warn Percy not to soften on Luke like Annabeth has. That night, in his dreams, Percy sees his father's palace destroyed, and Tyson and his fellow Cyclopes under attack. Then, he sees Ethan Nakamura at Kronos' war camp, situated in Auntie M's garden gnome emporium, being questioned about where, where on Percy's body he'd been aiming when Annabeth jumped in the way, though he can't exactly recall. We also see a brief slip that indicates Lou's consciousness may still be somewhat present. Afterwards, the dream shifts to the early 90s, 
where May Castellan, despite Hermes' protests, enters Cam's half-blood in an attempt to host the spirit of the Oracle. It doesn't end well. When he gets up, it's back to battle, even for the injured Annabeth. The main characters gather to make their stand, while the remaining cabins guard the other entrances to Manhattan. The Central Park skirmish comes to a head when the golden warrior Hyperion, Titan of the East and the Lord of Light, who Percy previously saw in his dream, arrives in full blazing fury. He and Percy engage in an epic one-on-one -on, -one on the surface of the lake, and the tide turns in Percy's favor when he harnesses the power of storms and drives the Titan to the satyrs, who imprison him in a maple tree. There's no time for rest, though, because Kronos then unleashes the Clasmonian Sow, a giant flying pig that begins to tear through the city. Percy grapples onto it and, in combination with Blackjack, flies wildly through the city, eventually managing to activate Grand Central Terminal's Hermes statue and the, the public library's lion statues. They tear apart the pig, and Percy and Blackjack fly back to battle. So, what did you think of these chapters? This was this book's just going from strength to strength, to be honest. Yeah. Like these were just ah uh, really good, cool action stuff, cool character stuff. <laughs> it's yeah, it's just really good. No, yeah, it rules. I feel like this may be the strongest middle section a Percy Jackson book has had so far. Yeah, because it tends to be a case of like, we start the the quest, we get like the inciting incident. And then it's kind of standalone chapters fucking around on a road trip. And then mm -hmm. we get the big finale. And we, we, of course, really like the road trips. But it still has a, di a very different flavor. I think the vibe I get from this is maybe like the last season of Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Ooh. Where it's just like, it's 12 straight episodes of the battle in Central. Yes. And that's kind of what this is. It's not just a few chapters long like we were maybe expecting. It is just a full, drawn-out siege. And it doesn't feel tired, because there's, like, this is really going in on, like, there is so much to a battle of this scale. Yeah, for sure, we are, like, the, like it's not just they attack the defenses, get repelled, attack the defenses again, like, Kronos's army are attacking in different ways, and the demigods are, like, responding in different, like, really fun and, with really fun and inventive strategies. Mm -hmm. And there's the moments of like tactics meetings, yeah. uh, like taking care of injuries. There's just like the little moments of respite between fighting, and those are all really good too. Yeah, definitely. I, I think maybe my favorite part about that, uh, to go a little bit non chronologically, uh -huh. is the middle chapter of these. Oh, absolutely. Because none of it is a battle, none of it is, con I mean, there's conflict, but none of it is like, it's, the entire chapter is just one conversation. Yeah, it's, it's, well, like you were saying, the really good bits, especially are like the breaks in the action and the parlay with Prometheus is, like, I like all these chapters, I think it's easily the strongest of the three. Like, Prometheus is one of those villains who I, I love to see in fiction. Yes. He is honest, and he is, like, genuinely good at arguing. Like, he's not some irrational, uh, like, straw man, I guess. Like, he's not unreasonable. You've, you could actually sit down and have a conversation with him, but he is a piece of shit. Yeah, that's the thing, is that, like, I really enjoy this book's take on Prometheus, because I think Prometheus is generally, like, a, a figure who people think fondly of, I guess. Yeah, you go to any given science fiction show, they'll they'll name a spaceship after Prometheus. Definitely, definitely. And it's always, like, you know, connotations of, like, innovation and, you know, humankind yeah. and all that stuff. But this book kind of goes with that and is like, well, this guy isn't just, like purely like he's not like oh i'm on the side of the humans forever for no like specific reason he very much has his own beliefs his own goals and his own like little he ha he's the god of or the titan i suppose of crafty counsel he's the god the titan of forethought and like you can tell that he has all these little like motivations going on yeah definitely it's I mean, it's what the series has always been great at doing, is 
taking these mythological figures and humanizing them really well and saying like well okay what would actually motivate a character like this well probably some revenge as well his motivations definitely weren't completely pure yeah like he admits it like hey i i'm doing this because i think cronus is going to win also, I really hated it when the gods tied me up and had vultures peck out my liver for a thousand years. Which, understandable, have a nice day. Yeah, it's like, I can't blame you for that, dude, I get it. <laughs> There's a lot of, like, I can't blame you for that, dude, I get it in these chapters. Yeah, I mean, do, do we want to get into the Luke stuff? I don't think, I want to stand Prometheus for a little bit because uh-huh. I think this chapter just, like, rules, I want to chat about it for a while. Definitely. Like, I think the the direct comparison to, like, the Trojan War is pretty effective. Yeah, that's... I don't know, it's just... It's a neat way of using the scenario that's been set up. And just, like, linking it back to... It's, it's come a long way from just, like, copy-pasting stuff from Greek myth to actually, like, organically creating situations that have parallels to Greek myths. That's right. And I think that, like... Part of this that I really... Okay, I had to stop myself because I know, like, I'm talking about, like, oh, Prometheus is this really good character, and uh-huh. he's very cool. I I had a little bit of a hard time taking him seriously at first. Oh? Because the way he's described... The only... Okay, the way he's described is that he is, like, Grover sees him from a distance and is like, I don't like the look at him. He looks like a magician, uh, he looks like he's gonna pull. He, like, oh, funny Grover doesn't like bunnies and stuff. And I was like, okay, he looks like a magician. That's okay, sure. But then it's like, oh, he has like glasses and like his like black hair like tied back. And the only note I wrote on these chapters is that Prometheus is Pendulette of Pen and Teller. <laughs> oh, that's that's cursed. I don't like that. But it's. So- it's it's just true. It's just true. You you're right, but you shouldn't say it. Like you don't realize looking at it that he does have an extreme li- like Prometheus is registered libertarian. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, his experience with government is again being tied to a rock and having his liver pecked out. Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, what I guess let's go to Luke now. Yeah, the, the the second case of, yep, can't blame you. Yeah, tell us about what happened here. So we we get a couple of flashbacks in these chapters. Uh, the first one is we we see, like, where um, Hestia's flashback cut off. Like, she, she stopped at the moment where Hermes arrived in the forest while Luke, Thalia, and Annabeth were, like, sneaking into Luke's mom's house to steal medical supplies. Mm-hmm. And we see them actually going inside, and we get to see, like, you know, Thalia and Annabeth freaking out because of um, Luke's mom's condition. So basically, um, Luke and Hermes have a massive fight over the fact that, you know, Hermes hasn't been there for Luke, and has just, like, left him with his mother, who very clearly needs, like, full-time care. Yeah. And Hermes is, like, throwing out this stuff like, oh, just go to Camp Half-Blood and you'll be able to do some cool quests, like in Greek myths. And Luke, quite justifiably, tells him to fuck off. Okay, this part made me, like, like jump up and down in excitement with, like, how correct we were, like, a couple books ago. Mm-hmm. Because this pretty much confirms that, like, in the gods' eyes... The way that, like, the Camp Half-Blood kids do quests is purely, like, a method of getting them out of their hair. Yeah. It's like, go repeat these old classic tales, do your silly little stuff, steal the apple, fight a dragon, and don't bother us. Get maimed. Get maimed. Preferably don't live too long. (laughs) Uh, I, like, I can totally see why... Like, Luke is totally justified in this moment in being like, I never want to see you again. I have my own family now. Yeah, exactly. I think you mentioned that we also get another flashback. Or not a flashback, really. But we get kind of told by Annabeth about something that happens. Yeah, we we get to see, like, 
what happened to Luke's mom. And again, this is something that we called a little while ago. Where we predicted yeah. that it would be something to do with the Oracle and her trying to take on those abilities. And yeah, definitely. Everything going completely to shit in the process. And we also get to see Annabeth talking about how like Luke came to visit her and like this is mm-hmm. before the Battle of the Labyrinth and like he was like, Hey, I I'm really scared. Kronos is like, This is too much. I think he's going to like kill me. I I wanna like run away with you. And this is like, okay, we're three for three here, because we also predicted that whatever happened with Annabeth, like, no matter how monumentous the decision was, it absolutely would not count as her fault, and was definitely on Hermes. Absolutely not her fault, definitely not. (laughs) Like, there's no way. Like, okay, like, Luke is like... Luke no longer qualifies to use the um I'm literally neurodivergent and a minor. He's like 20 now. He's like 20 now. He can't say it anymore. Oh fuck. And, and he's like, "Okay, Annabeth, I know you're 15, but can we run away together?" And um I'm like really scared. I joined all the fascists and it's not as cool as I thought it'd be. Like, I'm sympathetic towards him, obviously, but, like, he really... I saw a post earlier on Twitter, and I'm always really excited to see people posting about Percy Jackson on Twitter. Uh Uh-huh. But I think it was... I think it was uh, Riley Rethal on Twitter um, posted, like, a thing that was like, oh, Luke is such a good example of just, like, a white guy who feels like he hasn't been treated good enough, like, properly to his position in society, and so he joins up with the fascists. <laughs> it really is just, like, that's who he is. It, it kind of, of is, yeah. Because, I mean, to, to, to just, like, throw a dart at the board and pick an example, Clarice mm-hmm. has had... We haven't seen it as explicitly as Luke's circumstances, but we can kind of glean that she's had a pretty fucked up upbringing. Are you not like arguably worse? Like they're both bad, but like her, 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 like her godly parent isn't like absent. Her godly parent is present and physically abusing her. Yeah, and like not to be like oh, like both of these situations are obviously terrible, but it's very much the thing of like oh, like you didn't have to choose this, and you're very much using your like experiences as an excuse. Yeah, definitely. Like, I guess that that was one thing I was kind of worried we'd get with these chapters, is, like, it would be like, oh, Luke's fall from grace was, like, inevitable. But, like, no, we still very much have the impression that, like, he has still had a hand in this. He fucked up and made some bad decisions. Absolutely. One thing for sure is that, like, I I really... The shine is off of Hermes at this point. <laughs> yeah, we, uh... <laughs> I think we even wrote in an episode description that where Hermes stands at some point. We need to officially rescind that. <laughs> Hermes no longer uh, our best friend. Dionysus is our best friend now. Correct. Well, Dionysus spends time with his children. He, he does. He does. <laughs> he's there. He's at camp. He's there for the, I don't know if he's there for them. But you know what I mean? I mean, he's, he's there cheating on their mom with wood nymphs, but still... Yeah, he's, so he's, they, they seem like the kind of couple who have an open relationship, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know what, that's fair enough, actually. If you if you are married to the god of hedonism and partying, you you don't go in expecting monogamy. You're presumably into it. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, are they the kind of couple who are, like, looking for a third? <laughs> <laughs> We have so many bases covered with the gods. They, like we, <laughs> they are all kinds of weird sex people. Like we've got we've got Hephaestus, Aphrodite, and Ares on one side. Yeah. We've got Dionysus and who's Dionysus's wife? Ariadne? That's not right. No, I think you're right. I think it is. Uh, oh, I'm thinking of Arachne. I, yeah. That's why I got confused. But yes, Ariadne. Um. Like, they're on the other side. I'm sure that Hera is, I don't know. Into... Hera and Zeus are, like, the the seemingly picture-perfect couple who, like, live in a big house in a suburban neighborhood. 
but you know for a fact that they are both plotting to murder each other. Hera shows up to the Met Gala wearing the Peg the Patriarchy shirt. (laughs) Actually, I don't think she would do that. I think she'd be like, I like the patriarchy, actually. Don't make me say it. What? Does she have a patriarchy kink? I don't think that would be her position in the sexual dynamics of it, to be honest. All I'm saying is that maybe she was actually really happy when the council became unbalanced. I traditional family values. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's. I want to talk about. Hmm. There's a lot of cool stuff here. God, you ever just have like a completely cursed thought? I know for a fact that you know exactly who to blame for putting it in your head. What was it? The <laughs> the the idea to make a shit post which is assigning all the Olympians, like, troll romance types. (laughs) 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 Holy shit. This is your fault. I didn't do anything. I never made you say that. I didn't say that to you. (laughs) I didn't say you had to do that. The concepts did not exist in my brain until you put them there. One day I said, Jane, wouldn't it be fun if we did a podcast? And you agreed to it, so <laughs> you agreed to podcast with me. You knew what would happen. Yeah, no, I knew what I was getting into. Oh, God. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the first chapter. Yeah. Because I, I feel like most of the, I guess the ultimate meat feels like it comes in the second two, but there's a lot of interesting stuff here, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely 1,000% certain now. About what? Annabeth is a spy. The knife is a, a bugged magical item that she doesn't realize she's carrying. I don't know. That thought was like coursing through my veins the entire time. <laughs> because there's a really, really good scene here. When Percy and Annabeth get their time alone together. And it's just Annabeth, like them getting sort of a tender moment. And Annabeth is like, so where is your weak spot? And like, he just like guides her hand to it. Mm -hmm. And she like rubs her fingers along his back. And it's very like, just like intimate. And like, like I don't know, it's like good for these kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like kind of like an electric scene. And so far as like, this is really well written, like romantic tension. Yeah. But it's also, I guess I feel like that tension is like, electrified in a way by and like in a good way by the underlying tension of like why is she asking this like does this feel like she should be asking this what if this information gets out isn't this too dangerous see i i don't know i I don't know if she's like asking it on purpose because she is a spy i think it maybe just comes across that way because it's a slightly ham-fisted setup for like why Kronos would know that so that we have like a very explicit scene to point to later on but the thing is that so far at least Kronos doesn't know it oh you know what that's a good point actually he doesn't seem to during the deep dream sequence where we see our favorite character Ethan Nakamura yeah I our 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 best boy Ethan (laughs) uh who we've never called him Nathan we've never called him uh What's that fucking guy's name? Chris Rodriguez. We've never called him Chris. He's he's always we, we always get his name right. The only situation in that scene where I could see it being true is that like maybe he's testing Ethan's loyalties. Yeah. But I think that would be more like signaled, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and like Ethan having like shaky loyalty isn't really something that's been telegraphed. He seemed pretty pretty into the whole fascist thing so far yeah basically i i'm so like torn on ethan he gets a little bit more to do in these chapters but eh. he just kind of seems like a chump i think the nemesis stuff was interesting the stuff where he was like he revealed that he it was his mom who took his eye out yeah i think that's interesting and it's like wow that's fucked up sorry kid uh, yeah, well, you know what? Everyone in this series has a fucked up pair and get a better gimmick. <laughs> yeah, but most of them <laughs> don't do like physical harm, eye removal. I guess. 
Wait, no, Ares does. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. He, <laughs> wait, whose eyes did he remove? His own, to replace them with the, the little nuclear fireballs. Ooh, that's not even close to what I meant, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, what do you think of the hmm, the Hades scene? I I think it strikes a really good balance of like like the Luke stuff. I think it makes us sympathize with Hades, but we it doesn't. It kind of immediately comes in after that and reminds us he is still an Olympian. He's still a piece of shit. Yeah. Because, like, what happens to him is genuinely horrific. Definitely. Like, his his lover is vaporized out of nowhere, and he can never see his children again, basically. Uh, and then he takes it out on a small child. The, th- the thing with, like... <laughs> it's it's genuinely horrific. I There's a lot of, you know, I I, I feel for Hades here. And then the oracle comes out and is like, um, I told you, I told you so. <laughs> and <laughs> Okay, she did like, kind of have it coming. <laughs> but also you're right that this is like an eight-year-old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, being like, nana nana boo boo, you know? <laughs> and then in response and- to that, Hades being like, I curse your entire bloodline until the end of time. Yeah, I, I, I will forever curse your spirit so that never again while... While the great prophecy holds, will you ever be able to take on another mortal form? Mm-hmm. It's genuinely like, okay, Hades, calm down. We get it. Your <laughs> fascist wife died. <laughs> oh, fuck. I forgot about that. He even says, like, you know, this war has been pretty bad for the family. The, the European war. <laughs> it's so, like... I, I feel like there are... We talk about, like... um. The, this chrono side as being like fascist a lot we, we say that we say that a lot mm-hmm. and i think that part having world war ii brought up so much is genuinely kind of helpful in establishing a parallel there okay i i can hear your hesitance um well i but, was i was thinking it maybe it slightly muddies the issue a little because it kind of makes it out like hades is the face of that kind of thing I, I think it's less like a direct parallel in that uh-huh. exact way of like Hades is the face of this and more so like setting up like these are the dynamics of large scale conflicts in this story. You ever think about how uh, in the Harry Potter books they just did World War Two twice like they do they do it with Grindelwald in actual World War Two and then Voldemort is just like Hitler again. You're saying I shouldn't try and think this Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm I'm a little bit saying that maybe we're going down the Harry Potter route again. I, the thing about Percy Jackson that differentiates it from Harry Potter is that it's good. Correct. Yeah, it's it's leagues ahead. And that it's actually kind of it actually kind of has something to say about like political position or like mm-hmm. ideology at least. Yeah, no, that's definitely fair. Uh what do you think is going on with the Rachel stuff? I don't know. At the minute, it seems kind of like it's just a fucked up thing going on in the background. And -hmm. I don't see how it can even, like, impact the main plot, because I assume that it had been established that, like, you know, Kronos made a fucking black hole around New York so that the closer you get, the slower time gets until you reach the event horizon and you completely stop. So you just can't get in to help. I'm curious about that, too. I assume there'll be some way that, like, she can, you know, get in there. Oh, maybe she'll arrive at the same time that Typhon does, actually. Oh, shit. I feel like that'd be way too late by that point. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I kind of, like, don't know if Typhon is gonna arrive. Like, I feel like the conflict will be over. Hmm, yeah. But I guess if you fire a bullet in Act 1, or even, like, in Act 3 of a previous book... <laughs> or I guess like you chamber a bullet in act two okay you, you chamber a bullet in part four act two and then kind of shoot it at the end or like you put your finger on the trigger at like part four act three and then like it's pulled in between books and so then it's just kind of firing the entire book I assume eventually the bullet's gonna get somewhere I, I you're not wrong <laughs> 
So what I'm saying is that... If you set up a giant storm giant in Act 1, you gotta pay it off in Act 3. Yes. But it, it just feels like such a big... Like, this, this is like tearing apart the entirety of the United States. True, but on the other hand, Percy is invulnerable. So, you probably sick him on it. Can we talk about the Hyperion duel? Yes. Tell me if I'm wrong. Top five Percy Jackson anime fights. <laughs> it did have a little bit of that to it. The, like, dashing at each other across the water and then, like, summoning massive storm powers. There's a very specific part that I think, like, brought this kind of, like, I guess, like, quote-unquote, like, epic feeling where, like... Hyperion like releases a burst of light to blind Percy. He manages to close his eyes and instinctively brings his sword up. Hyperion's sword at that moment like clashes down to meet it, and the water because they're both standing on a lake at the same time, uh-huh. and the water like ripples in a big circle outwards from them. Like it's such a cool description, and also is just like very very evocative of a very specific style of fight that you see in anime yeah you can like you can see the fight slow down for the ripple spreading out as you're reading it and it's like it's extremely naruto and (laughs) i don't hate it this might be one of my favorite fights we've seen in the series so far yeah no it's it's a really fun action scene and i think it it's it's still really good when it like moves on to being about the giant ball yeah yeah with just like a really fun aerial chase and like Percy coming up with a creative solution for dealing with it. I got really confused for a while while reading this. Uh-huh. Because uh viewers, listeners, uh demigods may know or may not know that sometimes when I'm reading things, my eyes do this funny thing where they flip words around. Oh my god, Jacqueline Demigod real. This is maybe. So my eyes did this funny thing where I thought that it had described the sow as a pig lady. (laughs) Instead of a lady pig. So I was imagining like a weird like hybrid woman pig winged monster flying through New York. Also like a giant size. So you were just imagining, like, a giant woman with wings, like, sashaying out with a nose hook on? Kind... Okay, Jane. Okay, Jane. Okay, Jane. Okay. I We need to stop podcasting together eventually. <laughs> you save it for the bonus episodes. Fair enough. They're behind a paywall and only, like, three people listen to them, so we can say what we want. Yeah, listen to the bonus episodes, by the way. I did deliver maybe the most sick burn of jane of all time on the last one uh, <laughs> you did you destroyed me yeah i i actually really like the resolution to the 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 sow stuff though yeah definitely it's it's kind of grisly yeah he just like is like okay statues beat this pig to death yep and like it, they're made of stone so it's, it's not even like oh it's an animal fight like in nature no it's like just these giant rocks beating a living thing to death. It's a statue of a god using its stone caduceus to like slam down atop the pig. <laughs> and like the stone claws of the famous New York lions like piercing through its flesh. It's wild. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, what else is there to speak on in these chapters? Oh, actually, there's, there's one point that I wanted to bring up that is just kind of weird. Go ahead. Which is when Nico is like trying to um, summon his mother's spirit to find out what the hell happened to her. Yeah. Uh, Bianca shows up. Uh huh. To be like, don't do this. Yeah. And it just. It feels weird for her to come back for this. Because we had like a very final um, encounter with her in, um, I think, Battle of the Labyrinth. Where she's like, hey, Nico, stop trying to resurrect me. Don't call me up from the dead anymore. And then we get a scene here where, like, that happens. She's back up from the dead, and Nico doesn't really seem to acknowledge it and just dismisses her. She's just, like, clippy. (laughs) Are you sure you want to resurrect this particular spirit? Yeah, I, I agree that it's kind of weird. I don't... 
like i can see why like logically like in the internal logic of the story because like he's not trying to resurrect her he's just like calling her like they're on the same plane he's in the underworld right now Uh uh-huh i I don't mean like from a a plot standpoint i just mean like thematically it seems weird no i completely agree like uh-huh. i i'm I, what i'm saying is that like i can understand the like internal logic of it and so far as like i can see why this would be a case where like he could call her and it would be fine but it did feel like a final resolution and it did feel like it was kind of like oh this is the last we're gonna see of bianca yeah i, I feel like you could just like put king minos here or something that could have been tr- interesting yeah i don't know it just it's a weird moment that kind of retroactively cheapens that arc a little bit i think it's not a huge deal it's just kind of yeah did no you do i this? feel it i i feel it the like the core of it is still there he's not trying to he's not even trying to get in contact with bianca but it's kind of like it kind of feels like it added on to that arc because it's her being like don't try and resurrect me don't try and talk to me but also and then it's like okay in this book also don't try and talk to your mom yeah like what the, so like what is even the point of being the death god's kids if you can't use your powers to violate the laws of life and death it's a good question i mean hmm. like i guess it's okay if he talks to anyone else just not his family <laughs> and maybe bianca's okay with it while he's in the underworld i guess but like I don't know. It, it's weird. It's a little weird. I agree. I also thought that like it was kind of unclear like what exactly was happening in this. Uh, it pretty much goes straight from like Nico tries. Uh, Bianca shows up. Is like, hey, don't do that. Nico's like, I'm gonna do it anyway. And then it like explodes into a different scene. I can't tell if Nico is also seeing this or not. I I'd assume that that was Hades showing him it to try and get him to stop digging. You think so? Mm-hmm. Although, I guess that wouldn't actually... It, it probably raises more questions than it answers for Nico. I kind of assumed that, like, Hades standing there afterwards was a sign of, like... Like, oh, Nico's going to be in trouble after this. Oh, I think he definitely will be. But, like, I think that's what H- Hades was there to, like, indicate. Not necessarily, like, oh, Hades is standing here because he showed it to Nico. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to tell if, like, trying to resurrect his mom, or, like, not resurrect her, because he's not trying to resurrect her, he's trying to talk to her. Yeah. Um, If trying to talk to her, like, caused that vision, or if it was just a thing in Percy's dream. Yeah, I, it's, it's a little unclear. I guess, well, I was about to say, I guess it doesn't really matter, because all we need to know is that Percy knows, but I would imagine that Nico is going to show back up. So, actually, some clarification there might be decent. Uh, what else is there to talk about? Grover, Grover still just Grover. But Grover is uh, eating. He's eating furniture in the lobby of the hotel. He says blah ha ha. Uh, specifically, Louis the Sixteenth furniture. That, that, that's wait. Is that even correct? It, yes. That that one's correct. Okay. Yeah, because it's the it's Louis the Sixteenth, but it's the the French French dude. I don't know French guys. <laughs> is he the one who had the real? He like, he had like an eternal hemorrhoid or whatever. That was a lot of them. Gotcha. Um, yeah, no, Grover's still just doing his thing. I did like the moment where he and all the satyrs like trapped Hyperion in a maple tree. I thought that, that was, was cool. Yeah, that was a cool moment. Otherwise, it's just whatever. He continues to exist. Yeah, Thalia is a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. She's acting as kind of like, I guess, like a counterpart to Annabeth in Percy's ear. Insofar as she's telling him, like, hey, you got to kill Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, she is right. Y- yeah. And like, I think it's interesting how Thalia and Annabeth's relationships with Luke differ. Because I think a lot of it is the age difference. Absolutely. Like, to Thalia, Luke is, like, a peer. He's, he was, like, a brother, but, like, in a different way than he was, like, a big brother to Annabeth. Because Annabeth, like, idolized him. 
yeah, Thalia doesn't have this like idealized view of him. Like she was very quick to accept that he turned traitor back in Titan's curse. Yeah, even though the, like there's obviously a little bit of conflict there, but it's not the same as Annabeth, and I appreciate mm-hmm. that. That's good, like attention to character dynamics and stuff. Definitely. I feel like these chapters were a little bit not like empty, but I feel like they got to their point pretty quickly. Yeah, I think it's. I think we mentioned this last week as well, where it's like. Even the ones that, hmm, even the ones that are supposed to be like "quote unquote" breathing room, are packed with like important stuff to dig into, and there's not really a lot of like more more quiet character moments, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I would say that this was a little bit more heavy on those character moments uh, mm-hmm. than the past few have been. Yeah, there were a few, but not not as many as you would get in, like, for example, the road trip chapters from previous books. Yeah, and I, I'm into it still. You know, let's 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 hit some fast things because I think we're just about done. Yeah. Uh, the statue of Pompona. Oh yeah, that's that's a weird section. It's interesting. I think it's like it's, it feels like it's hinting towards some future stuff. Yeah, I know that we do get some like Roman god stuff later. And I'm into that. I like that. Like, oh, we see how at least the statues of these gods who seem to be somewhat, you know, in line with the personality mm-hmm. of the gods, uh, hold like a bit of resentment for being viewed as like exactly the same as their counterparts. Which I guess means we retroactively have to remove like justice for Hestia, for the asteroid Vesta having that amount on it. <laughs> It's sad, but, you know. Hey, speaking of that section, I think Rick really does just have, like, a dartboard with a bunch of famous people, like, pinned up on it. Uh-huh. And he just kind of throws them, and whatever one the dart hits, that one turns out to be a demigod. Okay, so the new ones that we got this week were, uh, the Beatles. All four of them. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if they have the same parent. <laughs> like, were they just a group of, like, brothers of Apollo? maybe or like maybe Ringo was like like they were all sons of Apollo except for Ringo Ringo was like a son of like Demeter or someone god who would be the god of trains because that is who like Ringo's parent would be god of I guess like Hermes yeah am I making this up or did we we hear at some point that Harriet Tubman's real father was Hermes there is definitely Harriet Tubman is definitely a demigod I'm still I feel like I'm still really angry about that. <laughs> Especially because the Founding Fathers were also all demigods. Uh, and I think, uh, who who was pointed out in this chapter other than the Beatles? It was Alfred like, Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock, maybe the funniest pull possible. <laughs> like, he's not even been dead that long. No, and he's like, he, he just made movies. And like, he made some good movies, but like... It's just, it's so weird. Yeah. If you were a special or important or rich person at any point, it's because you were genetically predisposed to being special or rich or important. I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I Uh I know deep in my heart that it's true. Yeah. If this series was written today, um, Barack Obama would be a demigod. Oh, for sure. (laughs) I mean, this series went after Barack Obama became president. Yeah. It's we 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 can't say that it's not going to happen. I think Barack Obama would be like the son of Hephaestus. Why Hephaestus? Well, Hephaestus has a fixation on building automatons and I feel like that goes quite well with drone strikes. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> yeah, that that tracks to me. That tracks to me. Uh Jesus Christ. Um <laughs> I just think there's something like there's something so you you know people I guess it's the thing of like oh a lot of these are demigods but they never realize they're demi because I feel like that's kind of like now that I'm thinking about it too hard it's like oh demigods don't grow up to be old unless they're celebrities. I I was thinking that as well especially because of the Alfred Hitchcock thing like he was quite old and yet we seem to never see any demigods live past 17 paul mccartney is still alive and i i don't know if i if i knew that i was like the child of a god 
I I would not sit around narrating Thomas the Tank Engine. For, I would actually sit around narrating Thomas the Tank Engine, but that's because I have a love of trains instilled in me by that show. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're still a human if you're a demigod. Yeah, exactly. Anyone would do that. Silena, Silena gets some interesting stuff here. Uh-huh. Silena's just, like, torn up about not being able to do more, and she, uh, she flies back to Camp Half-Blood to try and convince Clarice to join. I mean, we, we, we all know how that's going to go, right? It's going to be, like, fucking that, that battle in Return of the King where all hope is lost and the city's falling and then fucking Rohan comes over the hill. Who the fuck is Rohan? The... The, the the nation of Rohan, the Horse Lords. The Horse Lords? I have you not seen Lord of the Rings? I've seen Lord of the Rings, but this sounds made up. Is that the part where she's like, I am no man or whatever? Uh, it's a little bit after that. Or doesn't she have a horse? Yeah. Is she a horse lord? Yeah, she's like the, the princess of Rohan. Okay. Well, I guess I do remember them then. <laughs> Anyway, my point is, it's going to be that scene, but with, like, 30 skinny teenagers from Ares' cabin. And I, I will I will cheer and clap. Absolutely. Listen, more Clarice content is what we're all here for. I'm always a sucker for, like, oh, the, the, the reticent, kind of surly ones. I like Vegeta. I like Vegeta. This is my truth. I'm a big Vegeta fan. One day I'll watch Dragon Ball. And, yes, and when Vegeta comes along and it's like, Kakarot. Huh. It looks like you're too weak to do this. And, you know, joins in with Goku and fighting uh-huh. fucking Cell or whatever. It's always good. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that scene. Should we head to our segment? I think we should head to our segment. Percy Jackson is not cishet. Percy Jackson characters are not cishet. Sorry, uh-huh. the segment just keeps expanding. I mean, it hasn't expanded for several episodes. Percy Jackson books are not cishet. Uh, this week we're talking about why the Sea of Monsters is inherently queer text. <laughs> Sailors. End of discussion. End of discussion. Uh, Jane, I'm going to take the first slot this week. Go for it while I try desperately to think of something. The Percy Jackson character who is not cishet is Will Solace. Ooh, Okay. There's just something in my brain that tells me that Will Solace is maybe gay, maybe bi. Uh-huh. There's just, like, something about him. I mean, Apollo just kind of has that energy. A little bit. So I feel like all of his kids inherit that. That's that's true. Good for them. Good for them. Exactly. Well, this leaves me with a slam dunk, because I was absolutely certain that you were going to say Silene Beauregard. Wait, why is that? For, like... Rushing off on, like, uh... On a white horse. On a white horse to fetch her love to rescue her from this terrible situation. I feel like she's bringing her love into a dangerous situation, actually. Well, yeah, but to save all her friends. Yeah, yeah, totally. I I, I, I do kind of wish I'd said that. <laughs> but I feel confident in my guess as well. Fair enough. Uh, I think that'll do it for us today. Yeah, I'm sorry that I've been slightly woozy and off this episode. I was kicked in the head yesterday. <laughs> I'm still a little Jane bit... Got, Jane got into a street fight. I I was sparring in a controlled environment in a taekwondo club, and I got laid the fuck out. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're a black belt, right? You're supposed to get laid out like 20,000 times before you become a master? Uh, technically correct, although the person that knocked me over was not a black belt, so... I mean, you're not just supposed to learn from me better than you. I suppose that's true. It's a terrible situation, because I can't even swear revenge against them. Uh-huh. Because, like, they did kick me in the head and knock me over, but also they definitely pulled that kick, because I still have all my teeth. And I <laughs> apologized afterwards and stuff. So I can't even be mad at them about it. I can only be mad at myself for letting it happen. You'll do better next time. Okay, that'll do it. Uh, check us on Twitter at UnwiseGirls. Got all our links, uh, Discord, email, uh, Patreon. If you want to support the show, leave us a review. Tell your friends. Maybe play an episode for them while you're like hanging out. Lock um, them in a room and make them listen. We've got clips. 
show your friends clips. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Jane does a really good job on those. Oh, thank you. You can rate us, rate us five stars, and also write review. Uh, there are many things you can do to help. Uh, foremost among them is the Patreon, patreon.com slash unwisegirls. If you want to help us out a whole ton, we've got three reward tiers. At $1, you become in the Discord a camp counselor, and you get the special honor of being a camp counselor. If you do $3, you get all of our bonus content and a special role as a friend of Dionysus. And if you pay $5 a month, you get a special Discord role of Aphrodite's Chosen, all of our bonus content. This includes stuff like talking about Homestuck, talking about movies we've watched, talking about just our thoughts and feelings on things. Uh, Jane's watching Riverdale now. If you want to hear what Jane thinks about Riverdale, you can watch that. Yeah, I'm being made to watch Riverdale and read Homestuck, so if you want to, like, watch my brain get poisoned in real time, listen to the bonus episodes. There was a funny thing that happened, like, last year, where I was like, Jane, you should listen to, you should read Homestuck and watch Riverdale. And she said, I will never in my life do either of those things. (laughs) And then, like, half a year ago... She was like, okay, I'm reading Homestuck now, but I will never watch Riverdale. <laughs> and I've, I guess I've chipped away at her. You, you chipped away at me. Uh, it turns out that being paid by our wonderful patrons to do those things is a pretty decent motivator. If you're a $5 patron, you also get a special shout out at the end of episodes. Uh, speaking of, this week we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica Friend, and Erica. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. Bye bye. Bye.